1: James, what if we played a drinking game where we had to take a drink every time someone in the chat mentioned Taysom Hill today? Do you think we could make it through the show?
2: (laughs) Not yet. I'm not in college anymore. I I couldn't (laughs) – I'd just be pounding them back every six seconds. Chat would just kill us.
1: So, uh, you know, I had to jump right into it here, but we got James McCool joining us on the show today. You guys might know him from the DFS uh Theory Masterclass he did with Blender, that audiobook series. He has his own site, paydirt.ghost, lots of good DFS resources and tools, and he's the exact kind of guy I like to talk to on these shows, you know, really drilling down the evergreen concepts to help us become long-term winning DFS players that aren't just Plastic bags blowing in the wind every slate, chasing these plays. So James, I'm excited to uh, talk to you about uh, DFS and GPP strategy today.
2: Yeah, this, this should be a good show. Uh, I, I deal with it all the time of trying to talk people into not looking so much at finding the best plays, but instead trying to find the best way to build lineups. And people don't understand that there's a big difference on those things. And this is kind of a, a perfect slate to encapsulate that kind of thing with so many... Um, high value names. Um, Taysom Taysom Hill is going to be talked about constantly and uh, it's going to be a big talking point of should I play him or should I not play him and a lot of it has to do with what the rest of your lineup is and if you're playing on DraftKings or FanDuel. So there's a lot of things we can kind of talk through in terms of GPP theory and strategy on this one.
1: Yeah. And I, so I actually don't know a lot about like the specific contests you like to play. Um, I know obviously you are a, a contrarian player. You have that mindset of always trying to get first and stuff, which is something we, we prioritize on here as well. So tell me like, what uh, are you a single entry three max guy? Or are you an opto bro uh, MME? Where are you at?
2: Uh, I really like to MME when I have too much money. <laughs> and I just like want to blow it on something because I cannot MME to save my life. It's like it is an art that people underappreciate. I think um, Opto Bros are awesome in terms of the way that they can put things together and the rules that they put together into Optimizers and the way they just play them like a like a fiddle. Like, I think that Optimizers are a really cool thing and people who can use them effectively like the Osmos and... Um, you know, the, the JKs of the world. Those guys are great. Uh, I prefer to play the three entry max stuff or the single entry stuff for sure. Um, I hand build all my lineups. Um, I use optimizers in a way to kind of get an idea of what the most optimal builds are going to be. And I use an optimizer to uh, optimize for cash games most of the time, but I use it a little bit differently than than other people do in terms of um, building for cash games. But I prefer to hand build and I prefer to play the three entry max stuff. It's just uh, when, when I play things that have 150 entries in them, I'm absolutely swinging for the fences and I don't plan on catching those lineups ever. I I, I'm either going to cash very well, or I'm not going to cash at all. And that's what I would prefer to do
1: anyway. We got here, you know, it's a legit DFS show with two guys with backwards hats. Here's the thing. I'll show you how the sausage gets made. James did not have his hat on backwards when he hopped on the call in solidarity with me. He flipped it around. You said your fiance was going to be happy about this?
2: Oh, yeah. Margaret loves when I wear backward, hat, backward hats. And uh, I never do it because, like, I, the front of my face is not all that great. So, like, this backwards hat, this shows too much of my head. Like, you can see the hairline that is not there. So, she likes when I do this. She thinks that I look young and hip. But uh, I'm only doing it because Pete was doing it, and I wanted to be a good friend.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. So what, um, you know, another thing I hear a lot, and it's one thing that's kind of hard for me is like when you're doing content throughout the week, you want to be up to date on the slate. You want to be able to, you know, talk relatively knowledgeable about stuff. If I didn't do content, I probably would wait until Friday or Saturday to start looking at things. When do you really start to um, either build your lineups or get a feel for the slate versus not getting anchored to one thing too early in the week?
2: Well, I won't build lineups until an hour before the slate starts. Uh, I just, there's no real reason to do it. There's, there's a lot of kind of like mental issues that come with um, or not mental issues, like psychological issues that come with building early, right? Like if you build a lineup on Tuesday after Monday night football, and then you say, Oh yeah, I really like this lineup and you'll start to anchor onto some of those players. And then come Saturday, even if those players aren't very good plays on the slate anymore, in terms of like the circumstances of the chalk or the plays that have been um, coming out because of injuries or whatever, you'll anchor to the plays that you still had on Tuesday and you're not going to build as good of lineups. Um, a lineups. A lot of people, well, I mean, I guess I should say that you probably won't. There's ways to get over that subconscious stuff, but a lot of people have problems with it. So Uh, I prefer to build an hour before the slate. Um, I think that my intuition is good after many years of playing that I can build a lineup rather quickly. Some people it takes a little bit more time, but I like to wait as long as possible. Um, When it comes to actually looking at the slate, I I won't look at it until I write my article um, Thursday morning for line movement. And even then, I'm mostly just looking at the top plays and not really digging so much deeper into the slate to find the pivots and find the good leverage and everything like that. That I usually do Friday night or Saturday morning.
1: Yeah, check out James's article on line movement each week. One of my favorite reads as far as seeing what uh, sharp players are doing with the Chalky guys, where they're finding leverage. How would you identify yourself as like a single entry three max guy is it that same thing where like the weeks when the chalk hits you're just having an awful week and you're just playing for that one week where you can get all that negative correlation and leverage and rock it to the top
2: yeah man chalk weeks suck for me <laughs> really really bad uh, a couple of weeks back when my cash lineup put up like two 240 or something like that I, I had all of the cash in chalk or I had all of the chalk and cash um, because that's what you just need to do. And I had none of it in GPPs and all the chalk hit. And th- I mean, that week I'm going to lose my ass in GPPs. I'm not even going to have a chance. Um, weeks like last week were better, uh, week two or week three, I think where Dallas absolutely just crushed in the fourth quarter. That was a really good week for me as well. Um, but weeks where all the chalk crushes, it's going to be really hard for me to find success in GPPs, but I do make sure that I have plenty of, um, head to heads registered, so that i can kind of cover my losses on that because my my cash lineup is going to be so much different every week than my gpp lineup and if my cash lineup ends up doing very very well my gpp's won't if my gpp's do very well then my chat my cash lineup usually does
1: okay but not great How do you handle situations like I feel like this week's a good example with Minnesota where we have Dalvin Cook, who's going to be very popular, but there's not the most obvious leverage spot because Justin Jefferson and Thielen are going to be relatively popular as well. Do you just X that game out or how do you play those situations?
2: I think it's important uh, to think about both the direct and indirect versions of um, leverage because most people, when they think of leverage, they think of direct leverage. like They think of Justin Jefferson as direct leverage on Dalvin Cook which is saying um, if Dalvin cook is not getting the points, then where are they going? If you have Justin Jefferson, then he's getting the points. Uh, Dalvin cook is not. Uh, If you have Kirk cousins and a stack with Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen, if that stack ends up getting all the points, then Dalvin cook is not getting all the points. So that's form of direct leverage, but then there's also indirect leverage where you are pivoting to another player that is similarly priced on the slate. Um, And that's likely what I would probably be doing on this slate. Um, with Dalvin cook being very expensive, he is projected for around 30% ownership right now. Uh, but Alvin Kamara is only projected for around 16% ownership and he's 9,200 on DraftKings. So those two being right next to each other, it's a nice form of indirect leverage where you don't have to change the way that you are building. Um, you don't have to change the roster construction away from what most people who are using Dalvin cook will do, but you can still get leverage on Dalvin cook saying, okay, um, even if Dalvin Cook does okay, if Alvin Kamara does better, then you're still getting more relative points than the rest of the field at that position.
1: Yeah. So on Sundays with an hour before lock, when you go to, you know, hand build your lineups with a, with a fresh uh, perspective on things, where do you find yourself starting? Is it with like a core or is it with a specific stack? I'm, that's the one thing that's always interesting for me is like, I, I, I sometimes feel like I don't know the exact place I want to start once I'm ready to, to start building.
2: Yeah, that it's going to be different. Each, each slate. Uh, the, the first thing that I'm going to do every slate, those identify the main leverage point on a slate, uh, which is generally the highest owned player. um, if, you know, like last week, the the very obvious leverage point last week was Mike Davis. Uh, that there was just, if you were starting your lineups, you either started with or without Mike Davis and you just went from there. Um, this week, it looks like it's Dalvin Cook, but ownership projections, I think, are probably going to level out a little bit. Uh, I expect to see Alvin Kamara kind of rise up a little bit. I expect to see Dalvin Cook kind of drop a little bit um, with kind of like the, the Taysom Hill news and everything like that. As news continues to come out, I think this is going to be a more, flat week in ownership. So I think that really what we need to be looking at is how people are going to be building. And that's the other spot that I'll go to if I don't have a main leverage point is a main construction, uh, main roster construction point, where if people are going to be saying, okay, there's all this value at quarterback and wide receiver, I'm just going to pay up at running back, then maybe I'll try to go mid range at running back and then pay up at wide receiver and and be different from the field that way. Because you can still play popular plays that way. But um, if you have a different roster construction, then you're still going to be different enough and gaining enough points at different spots, uh, that you're still going to be unique. So I, I think that most of what I want to do is find the main leverage point. And then I'll be looking at over on my tools. Um, I have some red zone splits, which show uh, red zone and touchdown expectations for teams. I usually for stacks want to try to find the teams that have the highest passing touchdown expectation. Um, because there is a large difference between a regular passing rate and a touchdown passing or a red zone passing rate. So I'll look for teams that have a high passing touchdown expectation, and then I'll start trying to build around those as well as um, a top finish percentage, which is another metric on my sheets that shows how often a team has the top scoring players at their individual positions. So a lot of it is just trying to not only maximize my leverage on the rest of the field, that's first and foremost, and like the most important thing that I need to build for GPPs, but then also being competitive if those lineups are going to be unique, because it doesn't matter if you have leverage on the field, if your lineups suck, and and if they're not going to have high enough upside to win a GPP.
1: Yeah, and we're going to look at some of those tools here in a little bit, once we get into more of the specifics on the slate. How many, you said you hand build, how many lineups do you find yourself hand building on a given week?
2: Anywhere between three and five. Uh, if I really, really like a slate, I'll build five. Generally I'll build three. Um, and I'll just throw them in, you know, like the, the power sweep and the hundred dollars single entries and stuff like that. I, I mean, just like the mid range contests. Yeah. Um, but usually three con three lineups, just cause I, I feel like that's the best way to hedge off of a piece of leverage.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that too, because I've been building five lineups and I've even felt myself just like a little scattered, just a teeny bit scattered. I think I'm going to scale it back to three lineups this week and, and really focus on those and just make sure I'm kind of condensing on on the stands I want to take. When you, when you build, say, three lineups, uh, do you find yourself doing different stacks in all three or will there be weeks where you're just all in on a stack and then you'll rotate the pieces around it?
2: That's the hard part is because when I build more than three lineups, like I have w- like three or four players that I have in almost every single lineup. And then I'm just like, why am I building five lineups? I'd, I have all of this exposure to these guys in three lineups. I, I don't know why I need five. Um, usually each, each lineup will be a different stack. Uh, and how I have noticed that I've been breaking it down kind of like subconsciously is one of the stacks will be a direct leverage against... Um, a main piece of chalk on the slate. One of them will be a very high upside stack. And then one of them will be a cheap, like Millimaker winner stack where uh, like a couple of weeks ago, when the, uh, the Jets played the chiefs, I had a jet stack just yeah. because it, like it, it was so cheap and allowed so much other things that you could fit whatever you wanted outside of it. So usually it, it's three different stacks. Sometimes it will be two different stacks with a different variation of one of the top stacks. If there's one that is just, far and away the best stack on the slate for me
1: yeah chris asks how many players do you typically have in your player pool i think he kind of hit on that there as far as having the core and then the the stacks rotating around it but do you have a, a general number that you're you're in the range of
2: uh usually between nine and nine and twelve ish yeah. uh i have pretty tight course but that's just because i accept a lot of risk in my lineups um I basically want to say here are a couple of the best plays and then build some stacks around those best plays. Um, and that extends over into when I decide to throw money at the wall in MME, I'll usually have a really tight core, uh, a couple of players up there in like the 80% range. So my, my player pools are usually pretty short, but um, that is something that is not for everybody. Uh, if you are scared to, lose all of your money in any given slate, then I wouldn't suggest doing that. But I, I don't really care about the money that I lose on the slate because it's an investment for when I win.
1: Yeah. And, um, what was I going to say? I just lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. How much, um, with your lineups are you, um, forcing in the secondary correlations? You know, that's something I know, uh, blender talks about a lot. It's something that I've come to really like to use to break ties and, and really try to find those natural points to get the other correlations in there. Um, is that kind of a mandatory for your, your hand builds or just if it works out, it's nice.
2: It's, it's mandatory. Um, And I usually try to do it at this point because tight end has just been such a wasteland this year that I have really tried to use tight ends in my secondary stacks, Um, specifically guys like TJ Hawkinson or Hunter Henry or Mark Andrews or stuff like that, where they have a decent median projection and for them to actually find their ceiling, which is really rare for tight ends this year outside of Travis Kelsey, um, it's going to need to be a shootout. So I have liked using tight ends in my secondary stacks, but in every single stack, I, I'm trying to have as many correlative spots as possible just because I, I don't want to build a glorified parlay. If I, if I want to build a player parlay, I'm just going to go take touchdown props on all the players that I have in my lineups on, on Bovada or something like that, um, just to like have a sweat. But I want as little things that need to go right for me to do well as possible. So I, I correlate as much as I can.
1: Yeah. And with those secondary correlations, are you looking for, um, you know, max, le- max leverage uh, as well? Or do you loosen up your leverage requirements on the secondary, knowing you're already getting that with the main stack and some of your other core pieces?
2: Yeah. 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 That And that depends on what the main core stack is, right? Like if I have a really popular stack like this week, if, if I have a Chargers stack or uh, or a Houston stack or something like that, Um, My secondary stacks are likely to be much different than if I were going with, I don't know, like a Detroit stack or something like that. Um, The the main stack and the running backs are mostly where the chalk is going to come into play, right? So if I have a really popular stack and some popular running backs, then I'm going to be very different with my secondary stack, do something really off the wall. But if I have a a lesser owned or a a higher leverage main stack and some not so popular running backs, then I'm going to try to get as much chalk as I possibly can on that secondary stack because I don't want to over leverage. Like I don't want to put myself in a position where I need everything to go wrong for everybody else for me to have a decent day. Um, The chalk is the chalk for a reason, and it's not inherently bad. You just have to balance it. So uh, secondary stacks usually will be, um, They'll usually be leverage, but if I have a very off-the-wall stack, then I'm usually going to try to find a really, really popular combination and have that as a secondary stack.
1: One thing that is is interesting, and I had this happen in two lineups last week, one in the uh, smaller Spy, and then one we were in the for the Tilt Space lineups in the Game Changer. We had pretty low owned plays, but it was all very correlated. And I had two different lineups that were duped. And it's something that I'm starting to wonder where these correlations become a little bit more obvious. Like last week, DeAndre Swift and Terry McLaurin, even though that they weren't really chalky, they made sense as a logical mini correlation. And those were the lineups that started to get duped. I mean, do we do you have any concern with that? I know this is um getting really into the weeds here, but you know, the no- the one goal we want is to have a unique lineup in these contests. I'm just wondering if these correlations, they make the puzzle pieces almost bigger and easier to put together if we do worry about ownership issues down the road on that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I can see that. Um, I, I think especially when we have uh like you mentioned, like last week, there were some very obvious spots and some very obvious roster constructions that you were gonna build if you were attacking the main games on the slate, right? Like that Arizona Buffalo game, there were only specific ways that you could build with it. And when you're playing against other sharp players that are looking at the slate the same way that you are when you're in those higher dollar contests, you're gonna end up with similar plays and similar roster constructions and um, it's one of the reasons why playing things like, uh, like the nine dollar, like the slant or playing, um, the lower dollar contests, that's a good thing even for, for high rollers and high volume guys because those, p- the, the competition is not as sharp. So they're not going to be putting together those puzzle pieces in the same way. Like you said with DeAndre Swift and Terry McLaurin, like those guys as a correlation stack made sense last week if you were building with Arizona and Buffalo. Um, So you you do have to kind of worry about it a little bit. I worry a little bit less about being duped in main slate contests in showdown contests. I, I, the only thing that I want to do is just be unique, but in main slate contests, it's harder for me to think through, um, being duped in smaller contests just because we don't really have accurate ownership projections for those kinds of things, but you do have to be reticent of it and you do have to think about it. Um, you, you just have to look at it and say, is this something that everybody else is going to see? And if it is, then maybe switch like one, one spot on it, right? Like just make yeah. one pivot and, and then you're fine. Just one pivot away.
1: Yeah. And I think that's too one of those, you know, we're generally now, you know, we're paying down and trying to correlate at tight end. I think defense might be that one spot too, where it's just like, just go down a hundred dollars to the next defense. I mean, the projections are so close. The defensive scoring is so random. I mean, why, why eat chalk D? So that's maybe something for me, a note to myself. If I, if I think that this might be a logical construction, let's just get off the wall at defense.
2: Yeah, defense just is the bane of my existence. Uh, For the most part, like my defensive ranks just basically say, does this quarterback give up a lot of sacks and is the team total low? And if yes, then cool, play that defense. And if not, then whatever. But I I usually plug in defense last anyway, and at no point am I going to be trying to play. I I don't even look at defensive projections or anything like that. I just play mostly who fits and uh, kind of glance at rankings. But yeah, defense is the easiest way to be a little bit different. I I also think that it's pretty easy to be different at wide receiver this year. There have been a lot of wide receivers that have been very consistent and a lot of wide receivers that have had high ceilings as well. Um, And there's been a lot of chalk at wide receiver this year too. I, I feel like there's a lot of guys who are kind of gravitating to what are considered the best plays. If anybody is ever facing Seattle, the wide receivers against them get massive ownership. And I feel that it's really, really easy to pivot away from those guys um, in any format, um, even in cash games where like my strategy is literally just play as much chalk as possible. Like last week, Cooper cup was popular and it it was easy enough for me to pivot away from him, even in cash games where I typically don't do that. So I I think that that's probably the easiest way to be different is either a defense, like you said, or a wide
1: receiver. What are, you know, being a contrarian player, what, what are the, uh, examples of good chalk that you're willing to eat. Like, did you play Mike Davis last week or did you fade him everywhere?
2: Oh, I fade him everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um it, it mostly just comes down to the the way that I build my models, I utilize a range of outcomes system, which kind of shows how often players are going to be able to hit certain thresholds, hit like three X their salary, four X their salary, um, twenty plus fantasy points, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that makes it really easy to kind of compare that against ownership projections and get an idea of like how valuable a player actually is compared to what they are perceived to be by the rest of the field. Um, and typically what I want to do is I just want to look at the chalk and say, all right, is, is this player overvalued? Like, can this player actually get there, uh, the majority of the time, or are they just going to be a popular play because they fit? Are they going to be a popular play because um, there was an injury and now like it's Saturday night and people are just going to be jamming them into lineups? Um, I, I think that there's a garbage truck going by my house right now, so I'm sorry if this is really loud. But um, I think that one of the things that you can think about when you're thinking about chalk is, would this player be chalk on another slate? Or would this team be chalk on another slate? Like, Is there some sort of extenuating circumstance that, makes it so that this player is popular when you wouldn't play them otherwise. Uh, the, the Broncos against the Falcons was one situation where like I, I wasn't going to touch Broncos in GPPs with the 10-foot pole. I wasn't going to touch Noah Font in GPPs because nobody is going to be playing them if they're not playing the Falcons. Um, it, it's just like when, when there is a team that is going to be uh, super popular that really shouldn't be popular and wouldn't be popular any other day, Um, that that's the one that I'm going to be mostly wary of. And then when they get into that, like 40 plus 50 plus percent ownership range, like why would I play that in GVPs? Why would I play something that half the field has that there's just no reason to do it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I ate, uh, the Mike Davis chalk last week and, uh, but it's something I want to continue to think through. Um, and thinking about you, you mentioned those range of outcomes, like how many times does Mike Davis fail? at that at price. And if he's, you know, 70% owned, does he fail more than 30% of the time? You know, that those are the kind of things I think we're having to weigh there. Um, you mentioned your range of outcomes. Is this the spreadsheet you have? I wanted to do a screen share and look at some of the tools and things you look at it. Should I pull this up? Yeah, dude, go for it. Yeah. Let's see here. Let me add this to the stream. So let people know what these are. Cause I, I you posted a, a free tool yesterday as well. Looking, I think it was at specific player stuff, but tell people what we're looking at here and, uh, and how we might utilize it.
2: Yeah. The, the free tool that I posted yesterday was the opportunity search tool, which is on the site, um, which allows you to just type in any player and kind of see what their averages are for some important stuff across, uh, the season. And you can compare them to other players as well. Like you can put in the receivers for the jets here and see how they compare up against each other and see who's the most valuable, which is AKA Brashad Perryman. Um, but this is a free tool, and I, I use this a lot, especially for showdowns, where you're looking for any edge that you can really find between players and really needing to compare players and see who's most valuable. But you do it for um, main slates and for stuff like this as well, looking at the chalk. Like Mike Davis, if you looked at him last week, um, you probably saw him leading up into week nine and week eight. Like You can see that he was really, really good, but that this trend line is really bad going down forward. So this kind of made it a lot easier for me to get off of him just because he was somebody who has seen some some negative trend lines moving forward. But um, that tool and the uh, the area search tool are both free on the site um, over at Uh You can go over and play around with those. This is behind the paywall. This is the range of outcome stuff. Um, this is the stack page, which shows each stack along with um important metrics that are ran through the model how often they're the top stack on the slate how often they as a combined team score 20 plus fantasy points uh combined ownership combined projection blah 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 and then the main range of outcomes is here which shows all the players overall against each other um which shows price median outcomes which these are just projections if you didn't know projections are just median outcomes um how often the player is the top scoring player on the slate overall, how often they're a top five, 20 plus, how often they forex their salary, and uh, the leverage that they offer based on their ownership that is projected, and how often they are a top 10 play on the slate. So, this is like the main bread and butter tool that I have. Um, and I, I use this to look at everything from value to top plays to um, who should be utilized in terms of leverage, who's the worst plays on the slate, like sorting this negatively. Uh, you can see that Mark Andrews is just like a nope on DraftKings this week because of his ownership and his ability to be a top play. Um, this is It's just like a comprehensive kind of like one-stop shop in terms of looking at players and how valuable they actually are against how owned they're going to be.
1: Yeah. So one thing that, you know, I, 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 I'm curious your thoughts on if this is overly simplistic. I mean, one of the last things I'm doing when I'm building is I'm, I'm looking at final updated ownership projections versus uh ceiling, final ceiling projections and looking for where I can exploit those. But you're talking here a a little bit more about range of outcome stuff. What maybe nuance might I be missing in that kind of uh process there for identifying good plays? Well
2: I think that looking at ceiling projections is good, but ceiling projections a lot of the time are kind of like um like you, you look at them as a standard deviation above the median, right? Like that's, that's what a typical ceiling projection is. Uh, when, when I'm looking at this, I can compare a whole bunch of different things so that I can get an idea of um, not only value against ownership, but also top overall, like raw outcomes against ownership. So there, there is a reason to go with somebody like Dalvin Cook, right? And that's just because his raw outcomes are going to be higher than somebody like James Conner. Like the, the raw outcomes for James Conner are never going to be as high as Dalvin Cook. But then when you sort by value, like it's going to be a little bit different. Like Taysom Hill, awesome. is going to be the top overall value. Uh, this obviously will be different. But like Carson Wentz looks like a great value at 2% ownership. Um, somebody like Justin Jefferson looks, you know, 12%, but he has a 22% chance to 5X's score. Like thinking in terms of projections, I think is... Something that's maybe a little bit outdated. When thinking in thresholds gives you a little bit better of an idea of um, the gray areas of DFS because so many people focus on the black and white without understanding that there is going to be um, a whole bunch of different outcomes between the black and the white. Like if you see a ceiling projection of thirty-four fantasy points, most people don't even know what a ceiling projection actually is. Um, most people don't know what a median projection is actually taking into account. So. When I can break it down this way, it just gives me a, a better way of understanding. Like this percentage right here, this chance of being twenty plus fantasy points against the ownership. Um, this just shows me that Lamar Jackson is being undervalued. This shows me that Dalvin Cook is probably being appropriately valued. Uh, things like that, I think, are just uh, a really nice way to get a better look at the gray areas of the slate and. Um, not kind of get anchored down into more subjective projections.
1: What is that? Can you tell me again what that P column is?
2: Yeah. So Levex uh, measures the projected DraftKings ownership against the chance that a player is a top 10 uh, play on the slate overall. So this is showing how often in my simulations, a player ends up as a top 10 overall finisher across every single player on the slate. Um, if you go to QB ranges, which is QB specific, then it's showing how often they're a top 10 quarterback, how often they're a top 10 running back, but this is overall, right? So this is showing how often a player is going to be a top 10 finisher on the slate, which is important because in GPPs, you likely need a lot of players that were top 10 players overall on the slate in order to win a GPP. And then it measures that against what their projected DraftKings ownership is going to be. So I use this as a way of saying, okay, here is how valuable I actually think they are, like according to my models, and here's how valuable the field thinks that they are. Um, So if you take the models and how, how valuable I think they are minus what the field thinks they are, then you can come up with an idea of how much leverage they offer on the slate because that's how much they're being undervalued based on the chance of them being in a top 10 finishing position in a GPP.
1: So, can you go back to the Dalvin Cook one? Because that's a, you were mentioning how his, you know, raw output can be so great that maybe it even overwhelms the, you know, penalty for ownership. Is that the case here or how is he projecting in, in this LevX metric?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he projects fine for leverage, um, even at 31% ownership because he has a 54% chance to be a top 10 finishing play on the slate. Um, and if you think that this is going to be 50%, like, you, you can put in 50 here and now he only has a 4.14% Lebex. You put in 60 here and he has a negative Lebex now. Like at 60% owned, he would be overvalued by the field. Uh, at 30% owned, he would be undervalued. So putting in those things um, can can give you an idea of how valuable a player is. Like if I sort this by negative, then it shows what players are going to be the most overvalued by the field, right? So Mark Andrews, DeAndre Swift, and Michael Pittman are the three plays that look like they're the most overvalued by the field right now. Um, They don't have that great of chances of being um, top 10 plays on the slate. Only 3% for Mark Andrews, only 9.56% for DeAndre Swift, but he's going to be 25% owned. So if 25% of the field is taking him, and I think there's only a 10% chance that he can be a GPP winning play, then I likely want to avoid him unless I have other plays that uh, offer a lot more leverage so that I can balance it out. And that's kind of where, like, when I talked earlier about balancing out leverage and chalk, um, DeAndre Swift is an okay play, but he is a play that you would utilize to balance out an already very leverage lineup.
1: Yeah. One other thing, you know... Uh, I'm curious your overall thoughts on with construction with guys like DeAndre Swift and even, you know, Mike Davis a little bit last week where they catch passes and also trying to find ways to use chalk in unique ways. If you do choose, you want to go that route. Where are you at with including a pass catching running back in a stack?
2: Uh I won't do it unless it's a really, really high expectation for the receiving. Um, Like Alvin Kamara, I'll do that. Uh, because Alvin Kamara can have legitimately like 12 or 13 targets in a game, and, um, we'll be getting red zone targets as well. Red zone targets is probably the most important thing for running backs if you're going to use them in a stack, because you're not really going to be utilizing running backs in a stack if they're not getting red zone, um, targets, because they're probably not going to score touchdowns, which means that they're not going to correlate very well with your, tu- with your quarterback. Um, but Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey, um, Lev Bell, back when he was with the Steelers, like he, he was really valuable in the passing game as well. He'd get 10 targets and a lot of red zone work. So it mostly just comes down to having a lot of their ceiling tied to the passing game um, and also being utilized in the red zone. Because if they can't score t- receiving touchdowns, then there, there's really no point to have them with your quarterback.
1: Would, you, uh, would J.D. McKissick fall into that bucket with a little gross Alex Smith-McKissick-McLaurin uh, stack? Uh, let's see. Let's pull, let's pull it up here. Because that one, I mean, he is, I think he had 15 uh, targets last week. So he's definitely getting wide receiver level usage.
2: Yeah. I mean, when, when you look at the last two weeks, I, I, I wrote actually last week in my team notes um, that if he was going to be the next Alvin Kamara, like I'm okay to lose in week 10 with him being <laughs> the new Alvin Kamara. Because I did not think that he was going to be the new Alvin Kamara. But here we are. Uh, 13 targets and then 15 targets. And he does get red zone work. Like he had one target in the red zone week nine and then four targets in week 10. Um, If you just consider those two, over 20% of his targets are coming in the red zone. Um, Yeah, that's certainly valuable in terms of the stack. It's just like, I I don't know if I want to trust that JD McKissick is like this guy yet. I know that we have two games of it, but uh, both those games, like they were way far behind from the start. I mean, the, the Lions were well in hand last week. And I know that JD McKissick was, was still getting targets in the first half, but um, it, like in this example, yeah, JD McKissick. Sure. I, I would use him in a stack if he's going to be getting this many targets and this much red zone work.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's interesting for sure. I was messing around with some Alex Smith ones because Logan Thomas continues to kind of fly under the radar as a tight end. Who's getting reliable target share. And I also kind of like that game. Uh, the chat, I am going to string you guys along. We will talk about Taysom Hill, but I'm going to continue to string you guys along. Um, I want to use maybe can we try to use like a specific example of like some questions I'd have, and then maybe you use your tools to help us identify what would be the most optimal direction. The example I'm thinking of right now is say I want to use a Big Ben stack. They have these three wide receivers who are all I think appropriately priced, all getting decent volume, all have different you know pros and cons to them. And then you also have kind of an interesting bring bring back scenario where you could justify James Robinson or DJ Chark or hell you could punt it off with Chris Conley. So if I tossed out that thought experiment to you, how would you go about identifying which of those receivers to use and who to target in the bring back?
2: All right. Yeah. So the first thing that I would do is I'd go over to the opportunity search tool and I would type in all of those players um, like for the, for the Steelers. So you have Juju Smith Schuster, then you have Chase Claypool, and then you have the actual uh, alpha dog of Deontay Johnson.
1: <laughs> Uh-oh, so here's the bias is leaking through. <laughs> no, no, you're right. By targets, he is he is the alpha.
2: He's good. So, I mean, you look at all these three, three things, and you can see Juju Smith-Schuster, he's been getting plenty more work. Like, that's positive trend line. I think that Chase Claypool as well is somebody who you could be looking at. Um, Chase Claypool has probably the best red zone work over the last couple of weeks um and does average two red zone targets per game, but so does Juju Smith Schuster. Um, both of them obviously are gonna be guys who are going to be utilized more in like heavy passing games, whereas Deontay Johnson has been the guy all year in terms of his actual workload. Um when you take out the injury games, Deontay Johnson hasn't had a single game under 10 targets with the Steelers uh this year where he didn't leave with an injury. So I think that all three of these guys are valuable in their own right. Um, Deontay Johnson would be the first one just because he is the wide receiver one. And then after I would look at this, I would try to look at, you know, yards per target. All of them are about the same Uh, red zone targets. All of them are about the same. Deontay Johnson has this outlier five targets. Um, the other thing that I look at is fancy points per touch, where the best one is Deontay Johnson, 2.69, and then Chase Claypool, and then Juju Smith-Schuster. So I'll look at those things and then I'll kind of get an idea of like where the opportunity lies. And then I'll go over into the range of outcomes. I'll look at the wide receivers and then I'll isolate by Pittsburgh which will then show me the wide receivers for Pittsburgh. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster projected the highest based on baselines, uh, followed by Deontay Johnson and then Chase Claypool. Um, Deontay Johnson kind of sticks out here because he's the cheapest and still projected in like that middling range, whereas Juju Smith-Schuster has the best projection, but not quite as much value. Um, obviously, people already know about Deontay Johnson, projected 15% ownership, so there's better leverage in taking Juju Smith-Schuster. And then finally, what I'm going to go over to do is go over into the stacks tab, I'm going to type in this stack. I can't spell Ben Roethlisberger's name just like off memory. I can't do it. So knowing that Juju Smith-Schuster and Deontay Johnson are kind of like the top guys, and those guys are already selected by the model, um, I'll just put them in here. And then I'm not going to spell this out again because I don't want to. So lot, then I can see... A lot see, of shortcuts. Yeah, a lot of shortcuts. Uh, I'm, I'm big on working smarter, not harder. Uh, I can see that this stack costs 19000 I can see that it is projected for 58.6 fantasy points. Um, Ownership projections have it at around 32%. Um, the Levex, usually what you want to aim for here is about 5%. That's what's worked in GPPs so far this year. So that's, again, balancing the chalk. There's a lot of leverage in taking Ben Roethlisberger, not so much in taking Deontay Johnson, but it's okay. It works out. It's a stack. And then if you think that the passing game is going to get there, right? Like, Because you're you're not going to take a Pittsburgh stack if you think that um, the passing game is not going to be effective. Then you also probably think that, okay, the Steelers are favorites, so if the passing game is effective, then they have a lead. That's game script to be passing for Jacksonville. So then you're going to be bringing it back with DJ Chark, who I will, again, copy and paste. And then you can see this here. Um, you can see that this stack costs 24 um, seven. The ownership projection doesn't raise that much. Like DJ Chark only projected for 3% owned. The Love X is fine sitting here at 5%. Um, the median projections at 73 is not terrible. DJ Chark projects. Okay. So this stack looks pretty good as a starting stack. It leaves you over $5,000 uh, per player. Like, The leverage isn't bad. The ownership isn't terrible. You could also go, and instead of saying DJ Chark, you can take Chris Conley, which is the secondary wide receiver for uh, the Jaguars based on the model. And then you can see how that would work out. Uh, He only adds 2% ownership, but his median projection is much lower, only 6%. Uh, It dropped in Lebex. It dropped in 5x percentage. It dropped in top percentage. So it's pretty obvious that DJ Chark is like, the guy that you would want to use in this um, bring back. But that's mostly how I would do it. I would look through the opportunity tool search first and look at the wide receivers for the Steelers in terms of like their opportunity that's used. And then I would go into the NFL range of outcomes. I'd look at the wide receivers and I'd say, okay, here's the guys that I'm looking at. Here's how they project. Here's how they look in ownership. Here's how they look in leverage. And then I would actually go over and I would try to build using that. And after I have my stack, then I can just start plugging in running backs. You know, like, can I fit Dalvin Cook here? Like, how much money does that leave me? Okay, I'm at 33K. i am at 33 k That I know that I need some value here. But you can just kind of start plugging in guys and um, going from there after you decide on your stack.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's great stuff. And, and real quick, how do you, cause one thing I, I normally would always do the same thing and go chart there. I, I do feel like the Jags are a little bit unique in how much they've been willing to run their offense through James Robinson, even in negative game scripts. Um, would you consider him more here than maybe other team running backs in a negative game script?
2: Uh, for that, I would go over into the red zone splits and touchdown projections. And I would want to see how many, how many, uh, rushing touchdowns I have projected for Jacksonville. Um, they're projected at 0.9, but they are a team that will pass about half the time and run about half the time. So if they get into the red zone, there's a good chance that James Robinson is going to be somebody who might have touchdown equity. The other thing that I would do is I would go over and I would look at James Robinson in the opportunity search tool, uh, because I would want to see how his red zone equity actually is. Um, he averages 2.3 rushing attempts in the red zone, but he doesn't get any receiving work in the red zone, really. Uh, he only has three targets in the red zone all year. That's not awesome. Um, but it is 7% of all of his targets. Like, if he's having a heavy target game, he might get a couple more red zone targets. Um, it just worries me that when I'm looking at red zone work, if a running back isn't super duper involved and a team isn't like very, um, inclined to run in the red zone like minnesota the reason why you can use dalvin cook in any situation is because dalvin cook gets massive red zone equity and minnesota prefers to run in the red zone they run a 65 percent rate in the red zone so with a situation like this where it's 50 50 i could consider it but i would rather go for the upside of having dj chark
1: yeah, no, all that makes sense. Thank you for talking us through that process. Here's what we're gonna do, guys. We have about 15 or so more minutes. I want to touch on the two situations that the chat wants to talk about, which is Taysom Hill and then this DeAndre Swift being out potentially situation there. And then we will build a lineup. Uh, almost we'll do a different stack than the one we just did here, but similarly, we will walk through it. Uh, I forgot to go back to this view. We will walk through it and uh, and build that week 11 lineup for you guys. So let's let's just do this, James. Taysom Hill, uh, Sean Payton has announced him as the starter. I know people have been updating their projections. He's popping uh, even on DraftKings where he's going to be a quarterback. And I am legally obligated to let people know you can play Taysom Hill in the tight end spot on FanDuel. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. So, James, everyone wants your take. What are we doing with Taysom Hill this week?
2: Uh, you're playing him in cash for sure. Uh, Well, I mean, I shouldn't say for sure. Like it, I think that he is going to be very popular in cash and therefore I will likely play him. Um, He's a cheap quarterback, 4,800. You don't usually get quarterbacks under 5k. um, And that's really valuable in cash games, especially because there's a non-zero chance that Taysom Hill has a rushing, a receiving and a passing touchdown in this game like with the way that they use Taysom Hill as a wildcat and they'll line him up um, at tight end and they'll they'll do weird stuff with him. There's a non-zero chance that he has more fancy points based on things he doesn't do in passing than he does do in passing. So I think at 4,800, he's a pretty obvious cash game play. I don't know if people will go there. People might want to go Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson, but um, at 4,800, I think he'll be the cash game play. In GPPs, it's way more difficult because he's he's not good like he's, he's just not good uh he wasn't good in college he has not been good in the NFL he has I think I saw it on Twitter today he has like 11 total pass attempts in the NFL in multiple years of being in the NFL uh he, he will throw more than 11 passing attempts in this game probably I, I don't even know I don't know what they're gonna do with him but uh it it really the Saints are so dumb that they have, Jameis Winston, and that they're going to use Taysom Hill, and I just have not been able to really wrap my head around it. I won't use him in GPPs, uh, just because I I don't think that he's very good on fan on Fanduel. You can't use him. Like, I got, GPP, and this is the take
1: I want because everyone's jamming him. He's going to be seventy percent. Tell the people why they're fish for playing Taysom Hill on Fanduel.
2: Because he doesn't have a 70% chance of being in the winning lineup, man. Like, there, there is no there, there is no world where you're going to project Taysom Hill to be a top play uh, 70% of the time. Like, th- there's no way. Um, he is going to be massively, massively owned. And even if you think that he is going to be somebody who projects well enough to be a top play 70% of the time, um you gain so much more equity in top finish percentage in gpps if you don't have the player that is 50% owned in that gpp like at that point all you have to do is be pretty good at every at everything else and if that player fails like All you have to do is just be okay at every other position that you didn't have him at, and you're going to min cash. And you have a much better chance of winning the GPP if you have a player at that same position that does better than he does, and then you have the same lineup that other people have. So on on FanDuel, you can't use him. It just kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, where if you have a player that is going to be 40 50% owned in GPPs, you straight up, like, you gain so much more in GPPs and actual win equity and bank equity by not having him. So you're not playing Taysom Hill on Fanduel. You're, and, and if you are, then, um, take It's going to be a head to head, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no, cause I'll have him in, in head to heads, but yeah. I will not touch him in GPP.
1: So I'll push back just a little and I want to hear it. So, uh, you know, last week I see the case for fading Mike Davis, because you can get in a running back in those slots that has a huge ceiling and that could just absolutely lap him. With the tight end slate so bad this week, with tight ends scoring down so much, like who can realistically, you know, blow Taysom Hill out of the water at tight end this week where you're actually getting a leg up on that chalk? Uh, well, so
2: Mark Andrews was supposed to be kind of chalky on FanDuel. Uh, he was supposed to be the highest owned tight end at 9%, and then Hunter Henry at the, at the next one. Those guys are going to go way down in that. And you you can pretty much just cut every other tight end ownership in half. Um, TJ Hawkinson is in a good spot for Detroit. I think that, you know, we already talked about Logan Thomas being under the radar. He's somebody who has a ceiling. If he ends up getting more red zone work and gets more targets, like the, the way that I like to think about it isn't necessarily in terms of like, I'm trying to predict the future of who can do better. I'm just trying to say what benefits me more, playing Taysom Hill and getting those same points or not playing Taysom Hill and hoping that he fails and getting you know, so much more leg up on the rest of the field. Um, yeah, because tight end sucks, and it has sucked, and it sucks on FanDuel because you need touchdowns. But like, it, it, there, there has to be a better way to play that other than just saying, oh, yeah, lock in Taysom Hill this week uh, because he's the only play that you can make. I just don't think that that's the right way to play GPPs. It's better to try to get that leg up on the field at that one position because you don't even have to do anything else at that point, right? Like, if you don't have the 50% owned player in the, in the GPP, you can just play chalk everywhere. You can play the most popular lineup on the planet if you have the same tight end. Like, if you go Kyle Rudolph at 4,500 instead of going Taysom Hill, Like you don't have to do anything else. Like you can just build the best lineup that you want to build. You don't have to put any more thought into it. And I just think there's a lot more equity in terms of GPPs of doing it that way than eating the 50% owned chalk.
1: Yeah, and I get what you're saying because, you know, if if anyone's going to look at his median projection and he's going to look like the free square, but I also feel like it's a fragile projection and we could get funkiness with Jameis Winston. He might just suck, like you said, and if he's only running and he's not throwing for touchdown passes, maybe he does have a pedestrian day. And then in those outcomes, you have to, I think the hard thing is just like, then you have to, on top of that, nail your tight end pick as well and that's why it's harder because i do see Paz to Taysom some hill failing but to hit that and the tight end who explodes feels like a hard parlay
2: it is a hard parlay and and i think that that's why like i'm probably not going to think about it in terms of what tight end i would rather use i i think that i would probably just look at it as are there other players at 4500 that i think represent the same ceiling that um Taysom Hill does at maybe even at other positions because I, I can play Mark Andrews or I can play T.J. Hawkinson or I can play Logan Thomas. Like I can play those guys at tight end and not necessarily need them to be the ones that dominate at that position and, and break Taysom Hill. Even if they're like within five points of Taysom Hill, I think those guys are still fine plays. It's the other plays where you would then be uh, up against Taysom Hill in terms of forty five hundred. So if you wanted to have some other cheap plays. Uh, maybe at running back, which is another premium position on FanDuel uh, where you're trying to get the touchdowns. Like th- there there are other ways to look at the indirect leverage rather than the actual leverage that you would have on Taysom Hill. The other way that you could do it is by utilizing um, Alvin Kamara as much as you possibly can instead of Taysom Hill and hoping that Alvin Kamara just rushes for three touchdowns and Taysom Hill has like... A, <laughs> This is like an actual projection that I could have for him. 95 passing yards and like 30 rushing yards and nothing else. So, and yeah, exactly. Tournament fades that can win all the money aren't supposed to feel good. Like you're going to be uncomfortable fading him, but everybody else will be uncomfortable fading him too. And that's why they're going to play him. But the point here is predicting the future is really, really hard. Don't try to predict the future. Just try to beat the field. Um, and beating the field is easiest. If you fade Taysom on Fendel.
1: Yep. Uh, I think that's a very strong argument for it there. Let's quickly touch on the Detroit backfield because a lot of people were talking about that. It does seem like DeAndre Swift sadly will not play this week after his breakout week. Um, some talk about Kerryon Johnson at 4,000. My gut says Matt Patricia puts the ball in AP's belly 15 plus times. Do you have a take on this backfield and is there any cheap value pump plays you would entertain here?
2: Uh, this This is a hard one because DeAndre Swift just took over as like the lead guy over adrian peterson and before that up through week seven it was adrian peterson who was getting the most of the rushing work he was kind of playing the frank gore role uh and then he just kind of like stopped doing that over the last couple games deandre swift has been the main guy um i do think that it is worth saying that in week 10 they had a good lead up until the fourth quarter where washington kind of came back and um, I, I think that he probably wouldn't have gotten all of those carries in a similar situation. I, I think that it kind of played into his hand really well. Um, so Matt Patricia likes to use a running back by committee. I think especially without, without DeAndre Swift, he will likely use a running back by committee, but frankly, if people are going to be playing Adrian Peterson, just play carry on Johnson because we don't know what they're going to do. Matt Patricia is an idiot. Like he can <laughs> do whatever he wants. He, he could play a lineman at running back and like, it wouldn't surprise me. So I think that if people are going to be pivoting over to Adrian Peterson here, carry um, on Johnson is somebody who uh, like people like to talk about Adrian Peterson um, out targeting him over the last couple weeks. But over the last five weeks, Adrian Peterson has one target in every game except for week nine, where he had five targets. Carry on Johnson has two targets in week six, two targets in week eight and three targets in week nine. Um, and he didn't have any targets in week seven or week 10, but he didn't play in week seven. Like he didn't have any snaps and he only had one rushing attempt in week 10. So I, I don't think that it's this is cut and dry of, like, Adrian Peterson is the guy. Uh, I, I would expect this to be running back by committee and probably untouchable, especially because there are other running backs on the slate that you can use other than these two guys, right? Like, the running back for Miami, um, Salvan
1: Ahmed, yeah, he yeah, looks yeah.
2: Good. Like, he got great opportunity last week, um, and, and I expect that to continue. Um, and then there is Kalen Bolish, who is free of the Adam Gase chains over for the Chargers. Like, he makes as good of a play as Adrian Peterson. So um, that there's a, a lot of other spots that you can go other than trying to deal with this. Um, but if there's going to be a lot of ownership on Adrian Peterson, I'll want to either stack the Lions or use Kerryon Johnson instead.
1: Yeah makes sense let's wrap up here and build a lineup we can now apply some of these concepts we've been talking about let's do something different than the Steelers one since we already kind of walked through that one I'll let you kick things off you can start off with a play a stack something that's caught your eye and again this is the caveat we're recording this on Friday the slate continues to change but we will make the best possible lineup with the knowledge we have now
2: yeah uh this slate is kind of hard from a From a stack perspective, because we don't have any like the main big name quarterbacks, right? So like this is a slate without any of the super top flight guys. You can consider Ben Roethlisberger or Deshaun Watson as like really good quarterbacks, but I'm gonna go with Justin Herbert here. Yeah, Um, I think that he just makes the most sense for the Chargers. They have kind of like peeled back a little bit on the passing plays in the red zone, but they were one of the pass happiest teams in the league in the red zone, and uh, the combination of Keenan Allen and Mike Williams just makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I love that call a lot. Uh I think um I think Herbert is one of the better quarterback plays here. It does look like he's gonna get a little bit of uh ownership, but I don't think um that's a huge concern if we are including Mike Williams in this stack. And it does sound like you prefer Williams over, you know, going Hunter Henry, or I think you could even make the case for Jalen Guyton as a really cheap deep threat uh home run play as well. But what's your what's your pitch on Mike Williams?
2: I would prefer Mike Williams. Uh He just, he's one of the highest upside guys in the league and he does get plenty of red zone work as well. Um His ADOT is fantastic. And for 5k, I think that it just makes a lot of sense. It rounds out this lineup really nicely. And he's only projected at 4% ownership because people don't like stacking with Keenan Allen. They just think that Keenan Allen is going to get literally every single target. And that's not the case. So I prefer Mike Williams. I don't mind Guitan, um If I need the salary, I don't think that I will need the salary, but we can go there if we run out of money.
1: All right, I'm I'm preparing here for what might be a disagreement because I heard you make a subtle reference earlier to Brashad Perriman being the guy here in the Jets. I like Denzel Mims. Who's our bring back here?
2: I like Brashad Perryman more, but I can see Denzel Mims. Uh, I I think that last week was or the the primetime game they had was an aberration because um Jameson Crowder only played like 50 some odd percent of the snaps in that game. And I expect him to come up after having this week off. Uh, He was coming off an injury. So I think that's why Denzel Mims played so much. And I think that people are going to make that mistake uh, without like really pulling into why Jameson Crowder didn't play as much. But if we're really going for it, I think Jameson Crowder goes back to being the guy. Uh, and, And like he's a little bit more expensive. I don't think anybody will have him. Uh, I think people would rather go Mims or they'd rather go some cheap wide receiver this week like Michael Pittman or Jacoby Myers. So I, I do like Jameson Crowder this week.
1: I like that call as well, um, and I do think you uh, you can make a decision between Perriman and Mims, but Crowder's role and his targets are just kind of completely different uh, than those guys, and he's pretty locked in. Also, let's get in a quick needle to Joe Holka, who uh, is in love with LaMichael Pirine this week. I mean, this guy's going on every possible show, touting him up a storm, taking him first overall in the SMIZ cage match. Uh, tell Joe why he's a fish.
2: Uh, because why would you play a, a running back on a team that's supposed to be 10 point underdogs here? Like it, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and also like they, they have other running backs on the roster. It just, it doesn't make any sense to use a running back in that situation. Like It breaks like every GPP rule for, for running backs.
1: There's your answer, Joe. Joe, Joe saw one ESPN report. And he's going down with this ship this week we love you Joe um all right so we now have a pretty contrarian stack here at least with the secondary Mike Williams and the bring back Jamison Crowder um I really like this Minnesota Cowboys game what do you think about like a Zeke Justin Jefferson mini correlation here
2: uh it depends on how you feel about Zeke it does. Um, it sure does. <laughs> if you th- if you think that Zeke uh, is going to be able to do anything behind that O-line, then I think that I'm fine with it. Um, Justin Jefferson is absolutely the wide receiver that I want in GPPs, unless I am stacking Minnesota with Kurt Cousins and um, Adam Thielen. So, Ezekiel Elliott at 6,500, you're not going to get that very often, right? And if he's going to have the same opportunity he had before they went on that bye week, uh, I-, I think that it is fair. I think he's appropriately priced. If he goes back to getting the opportunity he was getting at the beginning of the season, it's a smash play, right? Like he, he is way underpriced for that level of, of workload. Um, so I, I'm, I'm totally fine with this. Uh, if you want to go with Ezekiel Elliott, if you don't have two other running backs that you like more than Ezekiel Elliott, if you do, then I think that you probably end up going with the tight end from Dallas. I was How just well.
1: going to bring up Schultz. Cause I think, I think he's very viable here as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was going to say, I think that if, because there are a lot of good running backs on this slate and I think that it would be worthwhile to take Schultz whose price has dropped. He was mid 5k for a while there. Um, and with Andy Dalton coming back, the offense should at least be manageable, uh, so long as he does not go down with injury again. So I like Schultz over Ezekiel Elliott because there's so many good running backs on the slate.
1: Yeah. No, I I like that process as well. One RB, since it does seem like we're going to have to save a little bit of money, uh, a guy it seemed like you're interested in, I'm interested in him. What do you think about Ahmed at 4,800 here?
2: Yeah, totally into that. Um, He got fantastic opportunity last week. Uh, He was as close to a bell cow as we're probably going to get on Miami. They do not have Jordan Howard anymore. They're still decimated by injuries. The only guy there I think is Patrick Laird. Um, You're the Laird whisperer. So like, what what do you got here?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, here's the thing about them. I actually thought, I mean, this we have seen a shift in this team of they want to use one back. I mean, them releasing Jordan Howard tells you everything you need to know because otherwise Jordan Howard would be the guy comes in, steals short area work, Laird working in on pass downs. Laird's just getting a little bit of work at the end of games. They want to use one back. We saw it with Miles Gaskin. Now they're doing it with Ahmed. The one concern I think for the Dolphins is now that Tua's taken over, All of the checkdowns to the running back have almost disappeared. So Ahmed isn't getting a ton of receiving usage, but I think his carry and his touchdown expectation are enough to justify him at this price tag in this matchup.
2: Yeah, I I mean, he got seven red zone carries last week, which is fantastic. Um, Seven red zone carries on 21 total carries. And as much as I don't think that two is actually very good, and I like that's a take for another day, but um, this offense is actually moving down the field pretty well. And if he's going to be the guy who gets a massive amount of the red zone equity, um, 21 carries and one target last week, I don't care if he had one target, if he had 20 plus carries, Um, that's really good opportunity for somebody under five K, uh, especially against Denver, who frankly just is awful. Uh, and we should not care about them. Um, I'm at, he's, he's in a good spot here for 4,800. I don't really care about the lack of receiving work if he's
1: getting all the red zone work. Yep, for sure. I think it's a really good spot versus Denver here. Um, all right, let's let's um, let's wrap this up. I'm just going to just randomly click a button and put a defense in here just to see roughly how much salary that leaves us. So 7,200-ish, we can definitely play uh, most running backs other than the super top-end ones. Where do you gravitate here and um, kind of your thought process on how to round this out?
2: Uh, let's see. So if we have 10-2 remaining, can we fit
1: Derrick Henry at 5%? Derrick Henry and we go down to two, two. We probably wouldn't play the Cowboys D we could play. We could play Jags at home versus uh big Ben who uh, he's definitely due for some stinkers on the road uh, as a, as a home favorite or a road favorite.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, Pittsburgh, I mean, like I said, when they're big favorites, they're letdown favorites. So, you know, emotional coaching. Uh, I I'm into the Jags defense. Look, Derrick Henry at eight K at 5% owned. Um, I'm I'm gonna chase that. I chased it a couple weeks ago when he was only 10 percent owned. Now he's at five percent owned. Like he's, it, it's coming close to to what do they call it? December? Like uh, uh, Dehember
1: is the official term.
2: Dehember, right, right, yeah. It's pretty close to Dehember. Uh, we're we're 11 days away. So hopefully we get an early Christmas present and we uh, we get the Derrick Henry 253 yard three touchdown games.
1: There we go. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, if you are interested in checking out James's stuff, which you should be, uh, on my channel, I have a link to his website in the show notes. Very cool, intuitive tools there that you guys can use to to make these informed decisions throughout the week. And how uh, how often do you update that uh, for the good people over there that are subs?
2: Uh, usually, like two times a day: once in the morning, once at night. Um, showdowns, and I'll update probably one or two times a day as well. But um, through the hour up to lock, I'll update whatever is going to be happening. Like I I try to stay on top of things as as quickly as I can.
1: Nice. Awesome, guys. Uh, If you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do that. Helps us out. Uh, We got the Discord channels going, both the Roto Grinders Premium Discord and my Deposit Kingdom Discord. There's a link to that. Lots of good discussion going on in there. And I believe you have a Discord rocking as well for uh, paydirt.ghost, right?
2: Yeah, but it is subs only. So Sub you'll only. get that uh, You'll get that Discord link as soon as you sign up. If you uh, shoot me a Twitter DM, I'll, I'll send you over a link.
1: There you guys go. Yep, follow James on Twitter as well. Really appreciate you hopping on with us for James, for myself, for Taysom Hill, who you guys love more than anything else in this world. This has been the Friday Build Show. We'll see you guys on Monday with the review.